Next, this month's special series focus on disaster medicine and preparedness. Unforeseen disasters carry unique challenges and learning opportunities. This month, we present conversations that scrutinize our plans and protocols and ask, how prepared are we? How will we react? The Weapons of Mass Destruction Commission is real. It is multinational, and the Commission wrote a paper to function as food for thought about its work. What do you know about the reality and the aftermath of a dirty bomb or a nuclear attack? Welcome to a special segment focusing on disaster medicine. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Edward Pompier, director of the University of Miami Radiation Control Center. Mr. Pompier has over 25 years of experience as a health physicist, and he's been director of the University of Miami Radiation Control Center since 1991. His emergency response training includes any response to possible incidents at nuclear power plants. Today we're discussing the knowledge and the impact of a radioactive attack seven years after 9-11. Welcome, Mr. Pombier. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. Happy to be with you today. Thank you. You have an unusual role. Tell us a little about your role at the University of Miami Jackson Memorial Medical Center and how you got to be there. Well, University of Miami Jackson Memorial is a public-private partnership the university being a private institution, Jackson Memorial being the public hospital for Dade County, Florida. I came out primarily of a regulatory background. I worked for the state of Florida, and I started here at the university as the radiation safety officer for non-human use, dealing primarily with in vitro research use of radionuclides. That led me into the position of director, and I'm responsible now for both the non-human use as well as for all of our clinical activities at Jackson Memorial as well as at several university hospitals, which we also provide services to. So what are some of the factors that influenced how your role has evolved? Well, I think 9-11 played a major role. At that point in time, the institution decided that it was necessary to address the concept of weapons of mass destruction. And while initially I was a little reticent to include the radiological possibility because I saw it as being highly unlikely, some of the things that came to light subsequent to that, let me to agree that it was necessary to look into these possible problems and to try to prepare ourselves for addressing these possible incidents. So tell us, what types of radiation attacks should we as physicians even be concerned with? For example, what is a radiological dispersal device or an RDD, and why should we be concerned? Well, the most common concept for an RDD is the combination of some type of radioactive material with some high explosive and using that explosion to disperse this radioactive material over an area. A couple of other things that have been suggested as being, quote, RDDs would either be using airborne dispersion of radioactive materials or possibly just placing a very large source of radioactive material somewhere in a public area where it wouldn't be obvious and where all the passerbys would be exposed to radiation. The last two aren't generally the focus of most RDD discussions. It's that first possibility wherein a combination of high explosives and radioactive materials would be used. And something that I kind of steal from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission fact sheet on RDDs is that RDDs are not weapons of mass destruction. They are rather weapons of mass disruption. And that's really where we have to focus on the disruption that would occur because of one of these devices and because of the commonly held view of radioactive materials. 
So tell us a little how this plays out, why it's not just a weapon of mass destruction, but something that would really get everybody upset and agitated and disrupt our day activities. Well, I think that it goes back to how radioactive materials are perceived. Oftentimes, people react out of proportion when there's a suggestion that something might be radioactive or there might be a radioactive component involved. For the most part, our role, or at least the role of the medical physicist in this, is to emphasize that the risk to both the patient and to the caregiver from the radiological component is relatively innocuous. It's there primarily to increase the terror induced by the event and to disrupt access to the area where the event may have occurred and potentially to areas where the patient may be receiving care. And this is really the role that the radioactive material plays, more than being part of the life-threatening component. It makes this kind of situation significantly different from the other two scenarios where we're looking at either chemical or biological agents, where they themselves are the real threat. In this case, the threat is how we deal with the situation, how we deal with the patient differently because we think there's a radiological risk. And what we have to try to do is avoid allowing that possibility to disrupt our delivery of medical care for the really emergent patient. Where would terrorists get radioactive material for this device? What would likely be used? Anything that we've ever heard of? There's a wide variety of radioactive materials that are in use, and I think we're all very familiar with the common medical usage. However, radioactive materials are ubiquitous these days. You will find them in industrial applications, research applications, and a lot of the current focus has been on an isotope called cesium-137. It has some characteristics that might make it attractive to terrorists in terms of being somewhat dispersible, having a relatively long half-life, and there are a fairly large number of sources of an activity that might be attractive out there, available in research facilities, It's used in blood banks for the irradiation of blood. It's used in a variety of gauges. And so this has been probably the isotope that most individuals have focused on uh, as a possible isotope for terrorists to try to acquire or make use of. Have they ever used this? Have we have any stories in um, our country or other countries where they've used this isotope, or is it just speculation? In all actuality, it is speculation. There has not been a radiological dispersion device. And some people might say, well, why are we worrying about this thing that has never happened? And it was brought home to me in a session that I was setting in on when the presenter said, there are two components to determining risk. The first is probability of occurrence, and the second is what the outcome would be. And while the probability of a radiological dispersion device is undoubtedly very low, the consequences of somebody actually using one could be very massive. We could have denial of access to the area where the device was detonated. We could have disruption of the facilities where medical service was provided if they became contaminated beyond a level where they could continue operation. And so it is something that we really need to take a look at and we really need to be prepared to deal with. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to a special segment focusing on disaster medicine on ReachMDXM, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, and I'm speaking with Edward Pombier, director of the University of Miami Radiation Poison Control Center, and we're discussing the reality of a response to an attack with a dirty bomb. 
So I know you're involved in training EMS units and other personnel in the hospital. What should the immediate response be if this is the mode of attack? The first thing we really would like to do is be able to recognize that there is a radiological component. In any suspected terrorist event right now, at least in our facility, we're assuming that there's a radiological component until we can assure ourselves that one is not involved. And the only difference in what we do because of that is we try to minimize any potential spread of contamination. We don't want to affect patient care. We want the patient to be treated just as any other patient coming in with traumatic injuries would be treated. But at the same time, we want to address the potential for contamination until we've been able to verify that there is no contamination present. So you're saying and then the damage and destruction done by the fear, the terror, and maybe an explosive device itself outweighs the risk from the isotope? Absolutely. The primary risk to anyone is going to be from the blast itself, and that's to the patient. Those patients need to be stabilized before anyone does anything regarding the potential for radiological contamination. Once the patient is medically stable, then we can do a thorough survey, see if there is any radiological contamination present, decontaminate if it's appropriate or as it is appropriate. But the real thing we have to do is keep our focus on the medical care of that patient. So they should receive medical care even before decontamination? Absolutely. Decontamination should never delay delivery of medical care. It has to be a secondary activity because the presence of that radioactive material is not life-threatening to the patient nor to the caregivers. So should the staff then have hazmat-type gear or just normal blood-borne precautions? Universal precautions in most cases is going to be more than adequate to deal with anything that we're going to run into. And so we just recommend that the normal trauma protocols be followed, the normal medical protocols be followed, and as a patient becomes stable, we will then attempt to evaluate the patient radiologically and make a determination if anything needs to be done at that point in time. How have you been involved in teaching EMS or ED personnel in your area how to recognize and respond to this attack, and what is their response? Well, we've not directly been involved with the first responders. That's been handled through the University of Miami Gordon Center for Excellence in Medical Education. They have a program specifically to train first responders. They're provided with instrumentation. They're provided with instructions as to how to set up perimeters, how to evaluate and make a determination if there is a radiological component. Where we come in is we have provided training to our emergency department regarding how to deal with these patients what precautions they should be taking. We've acquired some instrumentation so that we can rapidly screen patients coming in to see if they are contaminated. We've gotten what's called a portal monitor, which patient on a stretcher can be passed through that, and it will alarm if there's a radiological issue. We've acquired what's called a hand and foot monitor, which allows us to use that instrumentation to monitor our personnel as they might move in and out of what we would call the red zone, which would be the zone where there might be radiological contamination, and move out into the cold zone as necessary. One of the greatest shortcomings in these programs is the lack of qualified and trained personnel to do radiological monitoring. And so we've tried to compensate with technology where staffing might not be as good as we might like it to be. Mr. Pombier, where can our physicians listening to the show go to for more information? There are a number of very good sources out there. Among them would be the Radiation Emergency Assistance Center and Training Site, or as it's more commonly known, REACS. They can find that at O-R-I-S-E dot O-R-A-U dot gov slash REACS. CDC has some very good material online that can be accessed at emergency 
www.cdc.gov, the Armed Forces Radiobiology Research Institute at afrri.usuhs.mil also has good information available and a couple of handbooks and a rapid reference guide that's available there. And finally, if you go to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission at nrc.gov, and you can search either on dirty bombs and you'll get a very nice fact sheet or search on improvised nuclear devices and there's a number of discussions on the issues related to that particular threat. Thank you, Mr. Pombier, for being my guest. Thank you. We've been discussing the reality of a response to a radiologic attack. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to a special series focusing on disaster medicine. To comment or listen to our full library of podcasts, including this segment, visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Disaster Medicine and Preparedness. For a program guide and complete list of shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com.